0: Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan,
1: also from Planning Magazine. This is a bonus edition
0: in which we'll be discussing the implications of local government secretary Michael Gove's decision to turn down plans by retailer Marks and Spencer to demolish its 1930s building in London's Oxford Street and replace it with a new building. But before we get into that, John, tell us about the key news stories from the past couple of weeks.
1: It's been two weeks since our last podcast, so we've got lots of big news stories to cover. Up first is a guideline judgment from the Court of Appeal that overturns a previous High Court ruling that quashed an inspector's decision. A Court of Appeal judge has ruled that development that does not materially change the exterior fabric or appearance of a building can still be said to harm an area's character and appearance. The case concerned an application for planning permission to subdivide a semi detached house in northwest London into two separate homes, which was refused by the local authority and again by a planning inspector on appeal. In other news, a High Court judge has quashed an inspector's appeal decision, allowing a change of use of greenbelt land in southwest London to create a site for a caravan after concluding that the official had made a manifest error by failing to take account of the government's planning policy for traveller sites, which states that such development is inappropriate. In a further High Court ruling, a judge has overturned an inspector's decision to refuse permission for new homes in Essex after finding that the official had failed to apply the National Planning Policy Framework's penalty for councils that lack a five-year housing land supply, the judge has also ordered the government to pay the developers £7,500 costs. Meanwhile, a planning inspector has dismissed an appeal against Hartsmere Borough Council's refusal of 310 homes in the Hertfordshire Greenbelt, despite the local authority's woeful housing land supply position, but has awarded the applicant Red Row Homes partial costs for the council's unreasonable behaviour during the inquiry. Meanwhile, Harlow Council in Essex has applied for injunction against three of the country's biggest house builders to stop any further sales on a 1200 home housing development until the developers build what they describe as the vital community facilities set out in the original Section 106 planning gain agreements. In the Midlands, Warwick District Council's planning committee has approved a 55 hectare solar farm on Greenbelt land against officer advice after deciding that the scheme's capability for producing renewable energy and its biodiversity net gain of 131% constituted the very special circumstances required to justify it. Moving on to news of financial support, Almost £10 million of additional funding is available for council planning departments to hire ecologist support to help meet the impending biodiversity net gain requirement the government has announced. And finally, plans to ease the conversion of farm buildings into homes on protected sites have been branded as bonkers by the chief executive of the Yorkshire Dales National Park While the Campaign to Protect Rural England has said the move could irrevocably damage our most treasured and protected landscapes.
0: Many thanks, John. And of course, more details of each of those stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. OK, so now to return to Room 106 for our deep dive. In July, Local Government Secretary Michael Gove turned down plans by retailer Marks & Spencer to demolish its landmark 1930s Oxford Street building, and replace it with a new building. The decision was made on grounds of design, heritage impact and sustainability, but it was made against the advice of his own planning inspector and has prompted a furious response from Marks and Spencer, as well as warnings from commentators that it'll cast a shadow over other redevelopment schemes that seek to demolish existing buildings.
1: So I'm heading into Room 106 to find out more. Will you be joining me, John? John? I'm afraid I've got important business to attend to, Richard, so I'll see you later.
0: Fair enough. Well, here I am again in the room in which all new planning information is gathered. I think our regular contributor, Ben Cochin, will be in the section where they keep the Secretary of State decisions. It's one of the places in Room 106 that sometimes gets busier around holiday times. Ah, here he is. Hello, Ben. Hi, Richard. So you've been looking at this uh, decision about the refusal to allow Marks & Spencer to demolish their store on on Oxford Street. Can you tell us, just to start off with, what the Marks & Spencer scheme involved?
2: Well, Marks & Spencer's have been on Oxford Street for a very long time. They've It's their landmark building, everyone knows it, 1930s. It's a pretty tired old thing, actually. It's a collection of three interconnected buildings, pretty awkward site. So Marks and Spencer's been looking for several years to redevelop. Well, the scheme which came forward a few years ago was actually to demolish the existing buildings, the three buildings, and put up something new. They were going to be... Two floors of retail space and then offices above. So it was a demolition job, clear it, build a new something that's modern, that performs to current environmental standards. They thought it was pretty plain sailing, lots of schemes coming forward to do that sort of redevelopment. And we have this saga, which I think we're going to explore now, Richard.
0: And I think the first step in the saga was, naturally, it went to the local authority, Westminster City Council. So what, what view did the City Council take on it? And what view did the London Mayor take on it?
2: Well, Westminster, Marks and Spencer's big, big position, important retailer in Oxford Street. Yeah, they had concerns about the loss of an old building and so on. But yeah, they gave it approval in, in the end. And being a big scheme, got, uh, got referred on to the mayor. The mayor gave it his approval as well. And so it looked as if, like a number of other schemes, this was going to be plain sailing. But then the Secretary of State got involved. So ha-
0: how does how does that happen?
2: Well, some of the conservation societies, the 20th Century Society, Save Britain's Heritage, were very upset about this, put a lot of pressure on, on Michael Gove, And eventually, Michael Gove called it in for his personal decision. And the first stage of him making his personal decision was to set up a public inquiry. And the public inquiry sat for two weeks. They they had a very, very experienced, one of the most experienced inspectors, David Nicholson, who reviewed all the evidence. Hotly contested inquiry, endless QCs, giving evidence, Eventually, and, and where were the, the, the main contested points? Well, there are really two, two areas which are very interesting. Uh, one was on the heritage impact, a loss of a 1930s building, and then the sustainability arguments about this thing called embodied carbon, which is, I think, a turn-off phrase, uh, to me anyway. It's that basically it took a lot of energy to build that structure, And it's all going to get to to go to waste as it's demolished. And then you've got extra carbon being used to build the new store, etc. So there were long arguments about the carbon benefits of this redevelopment. The inspector, though, took the view that, and this was all part of Marks and Spencer's argument, that if the scheme is not allowed, the redevelopment scheme, they will leave Oxford Street, they will desert Britain's most important high street. And in the end, the inspector came down in Marks and Spencer's favor. He said, look, you know, yes, there are sustainability arguments, but actually the public benefit argument outweighs that. Oxford Street, London, can't afford to lose Marks and Spencers on Oxford Street. He also concluded that actually, if the building was refurbished, it actually could not meet Marks and Spencer's requirements. Very important point, that. If you
0: refurbish, can you keep Marks and Spencer's? And
2: he came to the view that that
0: was not possible. But Gove didn't agree with him. And as we've just discovered last month, what were the Secretary of State's reasons for disagreeing with the inspector's recommendations?
2: For decision letters, this was a long one, which was quite surprising and I'll come on to the reasons for that in a minute, I think. I think it comes back to this point about refurbishment. Gove thought that actually the case had not been made, that a refurbishment scheme could not be delivered that met Marks and Spencer's requirements. Or perhaps he actually came to the view that, well, if Marks and Spencer's uh, it's it, it, it's hard to read between the lines here, but he didn't think that... Marks and Spencers would go, or if they did, well, you know, he didn't rate the public benefit there particularly highly. He came down very much on the heritage angle, saying that the loss of that building was significant, and partly because of the setting of the... Because there are, nearby you've got the, the grade Two star-listed Selfridges building, and he thought it would harm the setting if we lost those buildings.
0: Because, of course, that's one of the issues, isn't it, with the Marks and Spencers building, that although it's an Art Deco building, it's not listed and it's not seen as having particularly high heritage value.
2: Exactly. I was just about to say that that one of the interesting points about this decision is, is that it's what's called a non-designated building. In fact, there have been two attempts to list it and they've, they, they got rejected. It was not of a quality to be listed. But even so... Gove considered that it was of such heritage value that it needed to be retained. So that was, interestingly, his main reason for overturning the scheme.
0: But there were other reasons as well, because he did have something to say about the embodied carbon argument, didn't he? Oh, indeed. He
2: said that there had not been compelling evidence around the benefits of demolition versus retaining the buildings in terms of, of carbon impact. This is considered very interesting. And in fact, what's really interesting is, and, and this is what, say, British Britain's Heritage is saying, is, is that it's interesting that he combined the two, which is very unusual, that heritage quality, embodied carbon, environmental impact come together in this decision. It's very unusual for that, is what they're saying. So we've got a, a, a sort of concomitant factors here. I think the point which is interesting is that the... Sustainability arguments, particularly in terms of embodied carbon, are actually not very well covered in the NPPF.
0: We might come on to some of that later on. But first of all, how did Marks and Spencer react to the decision?
2: Well, you know, I don't have much sympathy for these big companies. But in this case, they've been working on this scheme for many years. They've sunk millions of pounds into preparing it. And it's got thrown out. So Stuart Machin, the, the chief executive, issues this invective against the uh, Michael Gove decision, showing how so many schemes have got through. So why should theirs fall? And they're turning their back on the most environmentally sustainable new building you could imagine.
0: That's what the Marks and Spencer's chief said about the, the decision.
2: Yeah, it's an extraordinary document.
0: Do you think they're likely to challenge the decision in the courts?
2: Well, I mentioned earlier that the decision letter was long. And what people are saying is it's been drafted in such a way that it will be very difficult to challenge. Though, of course, their lawyers will be crawling all over it to find uh, the case, and I think that's particularly why he went on the heritage aspect because that one is much more solid in planning terms. It's within the NPPF, it's within the local plan that you have to be satisfied about heritage quality. So that was why he went on that.
0: I guess we should probably say that could have been a political reason to go with that, or uh, it's always impossible to tell, isn't it? Exactly what's been going on in...
2: Michael Gove's it, mind, yeah.
0: Yes, yes, or any other decision-makers. You know, <laughs> um, I see what you're saying, is that, you know, the heritage argument presented perhaps a, a solid base to build a decision on, and it might have been harder if they'd wanted to build the decision on the embodied carbon side of things.
2: I think you're right. Though actually, what one one of the commentators said to me, which was, I think, very interesting and very important, is that it also represents Gove's, or the government's perhaps, preference for traditional architecture there was this big launch last week of the planning reforms that they came out with and there was a great emphasis on design and traditional design at that event apparently more government people were saying so i think there could
0: be a signal here as well although it's not something that's explicit in the letter no okay and just in terms of what people see as the significance of the decision, I mean, what what, what do they see as as its significance in terms of the, um, the bearing that heritage considerations can have on planning decisions?
2: The fact is, is that, as we were saying before, the Marks and Spencer building is not listed. It's got no designation. So it can now be taken into account. Those sorts of buildings, if they've got a bit of a heritage quality to them, they could be seen as significant and retained. So it's Greater prominence for heritage in planning considerations.
0: Okay, it could have just got a little bit harder. If your scheme involves demolishing a property with any heritage significance, it could have just got a little bit harder. or I think you're right. And what about the significance of the decision in terms of the importance that decision makers should give to the embodied carbon of existing buildings? Well, I think that's that that's really
2: interesting and also quite difficult for planning authorities. This clearly raises the issue of embodied carbon in planning decisions, which councils are beginning to take into account, but it's very much at these early stages. Council plans have commitments to achieve zero carbon, but in terms of how you take embodied carbon into account when looking at schemes, yes, there are a lot of methodologies that you can use to assess what the impact would be, comparing the embodied carbon that would be wasted versus the new scheme that might be more energy efficient. These are complex calculations that councils could now be required to do in far more detailed way than they have been. But there isn't really a widely recognised methodology to do that. And I think the other point that's quite interesting is, is yes, I said that most most councils, and it's obviously in the NPPF, that are supposed to be promoting zero carbon, but not all environmental policies talk about embodied carbon to that extent. So how they respond, I don't know.
0: Okay that's very interesting Ben and and um, in your in your article which was published last week in in planning so subscribers will be able to to see that if they want more information I did notice that one of your commentators suggested that the uh, when the revision to the national planning policy framework eventually comes out it's supposed to happen this autumn this commentator was suggesting that it needs to set some tests as far as embodied carbon are concerned I think that's right what people have said to me
2: is is if Gove is serious about this, you can't make policy just on the response to a scheme. You actually have to set out the policy in detail. Otherwise, this is just like making policy on the hoof, which is not a very helpful approach.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for that, Ben. That's a great introduction to the implications of that decision. I'll leave you in here just in case any more Secretary of State letters uh, flutter down into Room 106 over the holiday period and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you in here again soon. Right, Thank you, Richard. I look forward
2: to it. Back into the dusty corridors.
0: Great. That's another edition completed. We'll be back next week with another update on the past fortnight's biggest planning news stories. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. To get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Nav Pal and Till Owen from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening.